Today's results mean two very important and special things. First, it means that Wisconsin voters have made their voices heard. And second, it means our democracy will always prevail. Oh, I hope she's right. I'm not sure she is, but I hope she's right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is, and it I'm is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And I gotta tell you, Desi Doyen, hi, hello. We have had so much good news for democracy over the past week. I, I feel like something must have gone terribly wrong. I know. It's way too much good news. Something has to be off. Like we have entered a different timeline or something like that. I, I really don't Not I'm not complaining, mind <laughs> you. But uh, boy, uh, from uh, Fox News taking an absolute drubbing last week in that $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit that they faced against uh, Dominion Voting Systems. News just broke, by the way, that yes, Rupert Murdoch and others will have to testify in that upcoming trial. That starts in a week or so. Uh, To Donald Trump's first First of hopefully many criminal indictments and his arraignment on 34 felony charges in New York on Tuesday. And then by Tuesday night, it became clear that liberals had retaken control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time in 15 years. Huge news. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what is going on here? It's it's as if the truth and voters and democracy might eventually win in this country or something. It's still a fight, obviously, but at least these are very encouraging signs. Yeah, maybe. But uh, all of that, that's not all. Uh, Brandon Johnson, a union organizer and former teacher, was elected Chicago mayor on Tuesday in what AP describes as a major victory for the party's progressive wing. 
Johnson, a Cook County commissioner endorsed by the Chicago Teachers Union, won a relatively close race over a very conservative Democrat and a former Chicago schools CEO, a guy by the name of Paul Vallis, who was backed by the police union. He called for hundreds of new cops to be added to the streets. Chicago residents rejected that call in favor of Johnson's plan to allocate more money to areas such as mental health treatment and youth jobs. That plan would be funded by Brandon Johnson's campaign call for $800 million in new taxes imposed on wealthy people and businesses. Well, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> Indeed. The 47-year-old Johnson will succeed Lori Lightfoot, the first black woman uh, and first openly gay person to be the city's mayor after she became the first Chicago mayor in 40 years to lose her re-election bid after finishing third in a crowded February contest. That paved the way for the top two vote-getters, Vallis and Johnson, to advance to Tuesday's runoff. Johnson's victory caps a remarkable trajectory for an African-American candidate who was little known when he entered the race as he climbed to the top of the field with organizing and financial help from the influential Chicago's Te Chicago Teachers Union and high-profile endorsements from progressives like Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It was a momentous win for progressive organizations such as the Teachers Union, with Johnson winning the highest office of any active Teachers Union member in recent history, according to union leaders, and as powerful progressive advocacy groups like Our Revolution push to win more offices in local and state government, including in upcoming mayoral elections in Philadelphia and elsewhere. But the clearly hugest electoral news of Tuesday night, perhaps the hugest electoral news of the year, certainly the most expensive race for a supreme state Supreme Court seat ever, the most expensive race for any judicial seat, for that matter, in U.S. history, topping some $45 million. Well, that was the race in Wisconsin for yet another state Supreme Court seat, though it was an election unlike so many over the past 15 years or so that we've been covering them closely on this show and at bradblog.com, because in the end, this one wasn't even particularly close Certainly not by Wisconsin standards, where they often have very close elections. Janet Protasewicz, a Democratic-backed Milwaukee County judge, won the hugely high-stakes Wisconsin Supreme Court race on Tuesday, ensuring liberals will take over majority control of the high court in Wisconsin for the first time in 15 years. The seven-member Wisconsin Supreme Court has had a right-wing, often far-right-wing and wildly political right-wing majority since 2008. But after Tuesday's critical contest, the state Supreme Court is now poised to finally see a narrow but unmistakable four to three progressive majority, as it will be deciding a whole passel of critical issues, not only for the state, but arguably for the nation over the next few years, as we'll discuss with my guest momentarily. Protasewicz, in the theoretically nonpartisan contest, defeated former state Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly, who was last defeated when he ran to retain his seat on the high court just two years ago before being 
well, nominated again with the support of the Republican Party to run once again this year. After his previous loss, Kelly went on to work for Republicans, the Republican Party, as an activist advising them on how to steal the closely divided state's electoral college votes for Donald Trump in 2020 after Joe Biden had defeated him in the critical battleground state. Kelly also had huge support from the state's leading anti-choice groups at a critical moment for reproductive freedoms in Wisconsin and in the nation. Protosewitz will serve a 10-year term beginning in August, succeeding conservative justice Patience Rogensack, who is retiring. Her term expires this July. Protosewitz's victory speaks to the importance of abortion as an issue for Democrats in a key swing state this year, with turnout the highest ever for a Wisconsin Supreme Court race that did not share the ballot with a presidential primary. In a jubilant scene at her victory party on Tuesday night, the other three liberal justices on the court, all women, joined Janet Protasewicz on the stage and raised their arms in celebration during her remarks. Just over a year ago, I got into this race. I made the decision because I saw that Wisconsinites we're ready for common sense and fairness on their Supreme Court. <laughs> they were ready to put aside the partisanship and put aside the extremism and to have an impartial court and a court that makes decisions based on the law, not on a political agenda. Today's results mean two very important and special things. First, it means that Wisconsin voters have made their voices heard. They've chosen to reject partisan extremism in this state. And second, it means our democracy will always prevail. Too many have tried to overturn the will of the people. Yep. Today's results show that Wisconsinites believe in democracy and the democratic process. Yeah. Today I'm proud to stand by the promise I've made to every Wisconsinite that I will always deliver justice and bring common sense to our Supreme Court. This is a victory for all of us. You have entrusted me with great responsibility and I will treat the role with the highest degree of integrity. I will bring the fairness and impartiality that you have all been waiting for. Our state is taking a step forward to a better and brighter future where our rights and freedoms will be protected. And while there is still work to be done, Tonight we celebrate this historic victory that has obviously reignited hope in so many of us. That was Janet, Judge Janet Protasewicz, soon to be Justice Janet Protasewicz, in Wisconsin on Tuesday night. The Republican supported Dan Kelly, however, 
following his second state Supreme Court loss in as many years, was not quite as happy or gracious at his concession speech as some might have liked in a contest that he appears to have lost by a whopping 11 points as of the latest reported numbers on Wednesday. Here's Dan Kelly on Tuesday night. And it brings me no joy to say this. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent. But I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. This was the most deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I have ever seen run for the courts. It was truly beneath contempt. Now I say this not because we did not prevail. I do not say this because of the rancid slanders that were launched against me, although that was bad enough. But that is not my concern. My concern is the damage done to the institution of the court. My opponent is a serial liar. She's disregarded judicial ethics. She's demeaned the judiciary with her behavior. And this is the future that we have to look forward to in Wisconsin. We've had this laid out plainly for us. We could have the rule of law or the rule of Janet. And the people of Wisconsin have chosen the rule of Janet. Wow. Um... Sore loser much, Dan? In addition to abortion, Protosewitz's win is likely to impact the future of Republican-drawn legislative maps, voting rights, and years of other GOP policies. It will also ensure that liberals will have the majority leading up to the 2024 presidential election in the closely divided state and immediately after. In a state where four of the past six presidential elections have been decided by less than a percentage point. Joining us once again today, as promised, a couple of weeks ago when he was last here to discuss the stakes of this remarkable Wisconsin race and critical, uh, long-awaited moment for progressives up there, it's our old friend, longtime progressive champion journalist and Wisconsin native John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation, associate editor of his local Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin, and co-author with none other than Bernie Sanders of the new book titled It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Oh, John Nichols, thank you, sir, for keeping your promise to join us on the day after. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad, it's great to be with you. And, um, you know, it, it's always kind of nice to be on, especially this show, talking about something good. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, I know it's, it rarely happens, but it yeah, is, uh, especially the day after an election. But, man, uh, today is one of those days. Obviously, a lot to talk about in Wisconsin, John, uh, including one other race on Tuesday night, a special election with some very interesting re- results that I want to get to as well. But I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, what also happened on Tuesday night in Chicago, a race that I know you've been covering as well with the victory of progressive teachers union supported criminal justice reformer Brandon Johnson over the right wing uh, sort of presumably Democratic candidate Paul Vallis. What happened there? 
Well, a lot happened. Look, it was a huge result, and, and this is one of the most significant election results uh, in the country for urban politics in quite a while. Uh, what you saw happen in Chicago was you had a sitting mayor, Lori Lightfoot, who had had a, a tough four-year term. And, 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 you know, some things Lightfoot brought on herself, but there was also the reality that she governed during COVID, mm-hmm. which was difficult, mm-hmm. and during, you know, especially a period of, of intense reaction to the murder of George Floyd. So she, she had to deal with a lot. She got beat in the primary, and the assumption coming out of that primary was that she was beaten because Chicagoans were, you know, really open to a tough-on-crime, law-and-order message mm-hmm. that they, they basically wanted um, somebody who was going to be, you know, run as a Democrat, but basically be a Republican light on a lot of issues. And that was Paul Ballas, the former head of the Chicago schools. Mm-hmm. The candidate who came in against him, Brandon Johnson, finished far behind Ballas in the primary. He was not that well-known. He didn't have anywhere near as much money or the corporate or big political player endorsements that Ballas had. That was Brandon Johnson. Mm-hmm. And Brandon Johnson, between the end of February and Election Day, meticulously built a coalition that um, really reflected the coalition of 40 years ago that elected former Mayor Carol Washington. It was a multiracial multi-ethnic, multi-generational rainbow coalition. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got the key endorsements in the black community, in the Hispanic community from uh, progressives. He had the strong support of the city's teachers union, and he didn't run away from it. Mm-hmm. He embraced it as a former teacher, former union organizer. And lo and behold, last night, by a narrow margin, he beat the guy that everybody bet was going to be the next mayor of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Brandon Johnson will take office as a progressive who ran on taxing the rich, reforming the police, mm-hmm. and investing money in public education, public health, and public services. A pretty remarkable win. Imagine that. Imagine what happens when people turn out to vote. I, and I yeah. I don't think that, uh, I, well, I didn't see it, but I suspect Paul Vallis's, uh concession speech wasn't quite as bitter as uh, Dan Kelly's that we played there. Let's move forward to Wisconsin, see what I did there. Uh, in, in what yep. you described at The Nation uh, as the most important election, Election of 2023, calling it a victory for Protosewitz that, quote, matters not just for Wisconsin, but for any American who cares about democracy, fair elections, voting rights, and much more. But I have to ask, because after hearing, we'll get to that, but after hearing Kelly's sore loser speech there, uh, I, I, what were the, quote, rancid slanders that were, uh, quote, beneath contempt that Kelly was referring to in those stunning election night remarks uh, uh, describing Protosewitz as a serial liar? What was that about, John? Well, it was a bitter race, and it was an intense race. This was the most expensive Supreme Court race in the history of the United States. Uh-huh. About $45 million was spent. It may even get up to closer to $50 million. And um, most of that was on negative TV ads. And so both sides were throwing a lot of charges at one another. But uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, what Kelly's talking about when he refers to rancid, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. is his record. <laughs> you know, this, this guy um, tried to lie to the with people of Wisconsin and claim that he was just a nonpartisan, uh, you know, play-it-by-the-book, read the Constitution, follow the rule of law, mm-hmm. jurist. And he was nothing of the sort. He was, his entire career, going back to when he, you know, 
graduated from Regent Law School, mm. right, uh, back in the days when it was Pat Robertson Law School or right. whatever. Um, he came to Wisconsin, went to work for right-wing uh, groups, right-wing foundations. He was kind of the lawyer of choice for right-wingers on all sorts of, of issues. And he was very, very close to former Governor Scott Walker, the mm. anti-labor, uh, very conservative Republican governor. Mm. Uh, in fact, when Walker, gerryman- Walker and Republicans in the legislature gerrymandered the maps, it was Dan Kelly who went into court to defend the gerrymandered map. Mm. And he was rewarded for that with a seat on the Supreme Court where his brief tenure as an appointed member of the court was so extreme that he got voted out in 2020. When he left after being voted out by the people of Wisconsin in 2020, he went to work for the Republican Party during the 2020 presidential campaign and its aftermath in which we learned from the January 6th committee that he participated in discussions about and did counsel as regards the fake elector schemes to overturn the election. So what did Janet Protasiewicz do? She (laughs) talked about all that in her ad. And that's, I guess, what he says is rancid. Well, how beneath contempt of her to point out his record like that. Uh, Even in bitter races, I don't know that I have ever seen a... I don't can't even call it a concession speech, but I don't I don't think I've ever seen a, a speech from a losing candidate quite like that one, John. Uh, y- no, yeah, it's going to go down in history. I mean, that yeah. that, that clip yeah. is going to be it's going to exist forever. Wow. And the thing to understand about it is I have covered, you know, I don't even know since I was a kid. I've been covering uh, politics. We're, yeah. we're into the thousands of concessions. Yeah. I've covered a lot of them. Yeah. And I've seen bitter concessions. Yeah. I've seen angry concessions. <laughs> right. I've seen refusals to concede. I have never, up till now, yeah. seen a concession in which you literally made people cringe. Yeah. Right? I mean, even, I think even his supporters were cringing. Yeah, no, you could hear them. They were not comfortable with, with that kind of language. No. I, listen, I don't want to spend too much more time on uh, dudes like that, but yeah, it really was remarkable. Now, now you note uh, on the on the positive side here, uh, you note at the uh, Nation that uh, Protasiewicz's victory was quote not just in progressive strongholds like Madison and Milwaukee, but also in many of the state's smaller cities and rural counties. What should we take from that, John Nichols? Well. A couple things. First and foremost, I think Wisconsin is evolving, and, and Wisconsin's a battleground state, as mm-hmm. you noted in your intro mm-hmm. of the last six presidential elections, four were decided by under 25,000 votes. It's a, it's a very competitive state, mm-hmm. but it, it has, you know, patterns. It, it, it moves one direction, it moves another direction. In the early 2010s, it moved very much to the right, backing Scott Walker with a Republican legislature. A lot of Republican wins. Um, in the last four or five years, it's been moving more to the left with more Democratic wins. It's actually quite a pattern of Democratic wins. This is the third major Supreme Court race, for instance, since 2018 that progressives have won. Mm. And, and so I think what you have to recognize is that this race comes in a context, and Democrats and progressives are doing better in um, non-urban, rural, um, mm-hmm. suburban areas than they did in the past. Some of that is a reaction to Trump. Some of that is a reaction to the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs on abortion rights. I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors. Mm-hmm. But bottom line is that Janet Protasiewicz, um, she won Madison, which is the liberal bastion. Mm-hmm. You expect that to happen. She won Milwaukee, which you know, traditionally votes Democratic. But she also won 
uh, counties that Trump won, like mm-hmm. uh, Brown County around Green Bay mm-hmm. and Kenosha County, uh, down by Kenosha, down in southeastern Wisconsin. And she won a, a huge swath of rural counties going west of Madison all the way to the Mississippi River, county after county, many of them places that, you know, the biggest town is like six, 7,000 people, yeah. maybe 8,000. And so this is the kind of victory that Democrats used to win mm. in Wisconsin, right? Interesting, and yeah. It's, it's very significant because it's the sort of reassembling of the map, if you will. And if this is indeed a pattern, if this is where Democrats are headed, then maybe the happiest person last night, aside from, you know, Janet Protosiewicz and her supporters, uh, might be Joe Biden. Yeah. Because as he looks to 2024, this is a very, very encouraging result and a very encouraging map. Well, you know, Republicans ignore this sort of thing at their own peril, and I suspect they're going to ignore it because that seems to have been their pattern now for the past couple of uh, election cycles, John. There was also uh, unprecedented turnout in student districts around the state in the statewide race. I saw uh, last night on Twitter some of the remarkable video. I think it was from University of, of Madison uh, with with college kids sort of lined up to vote through corridor after corridor in the student union for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet it seemed like is this another win akin to what many saw last november that can be chalked up perhaps to gen z because i've got to tell you i you know i've heard folks complaining for years that young people don't come out to vote uh and and that seems remarkably outdated at this point to me john yeah sure it's it's one of those uh you know, kind of old saws that, that developed at one time when maybe there was a pattern. And, mm-hmm. and people used to say this about, you know, uh, many different demographic groups, that they didn't vote as much as the, I guess, traditional white mainstream older folks, right? Mm-hmm. That, that that was something that somehow um, other groups didn't vote at that, at that same rate. That's, a, that's just not true across the board anymore. The fact of the matter is that we have all sorts of, of uh, demographic groups that are now voting at uh, at or above the average mm-hmm. in this country. Now, young people haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, there still, you have a pattern of young people voting at at a lower rate than older folks, and that is partially because they're more mobile, um, partially because you know often there are real barriers to them voting, especially uh, in many states, including Wisconsin, it makes it uh, harder to vote as a university student than if you're living in your hometown and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But um, your point is well taken. There were lines at not just the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but there were also lines at places like the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire up in northwestern Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while Perteseos' win was so big that um, I, I would suggest to you that students and young people were a part of it, not, not, the, not the tipping point as they were in the Biden win last year or mm-hmm. in, in 2020. When Biden won Wisconsin, he would not have won it without the youth vote. But in this case, the youth vote becomes a part of a broader pattern of victory. However, it's significant. Curtis uh, had a big win. She had it in, in part because young voters turned out in disproportional numbers at much higher rates than in the past. And you ask yourself, well, what, what made them come vote? I don't think there's much question that, while there's certainly a variety of issues in play, that in talking to students on several campuses, as, as reporting on the race, uh, I will tell you that the issue of reproductive rights was front and center. Mm. And, and I think 
that that was something that really resonated with a lot of young voters um, and made them, you know, recognize that this was, A, an important race, and, B, a very stark choice. Dan Kelly was supported by militant anti-abortion groups Mm -hmm. in the state. Janet Protasewicz said from the start of the race that she would talk about her values and that among her values was a belief that women have a right to choose. And And so you couldn't have had a clearer choice. And uh, let's talk about uh, some of the, the substance of this win, what it means moving forward. Our friend uh, Ari Berman of Mother Jones, uh, your, your former colleague at The Nation, as yes. I recall, uh, he tweeted on Tuesday night, quote, Dems and Dem-backed candidates have won 14 of the last 17 statewide elections in Wisconsin, but the GOP controls 67% of the seats in the state Senate, 65% of the seats in the Assembly. That's why Janet Protasewicz's victory is so huge. He says there's finally a chance to strike down gerrymandering that warped Wisconsin politics. And I'll, I'll, I want to talk about another race, as I noted on, on Tuesday night, that sort of underscores all of that in a second. But let's step through what you see as the top potential changes to Wisconsin law that could now happen that could simply not have happened over the past several, well, you know, decade and a half at least of right-wing rule at the Supreme Court. What are the sort of uh, three or four top issues that you expect to come before the court that might change, you know, what we have known out of Wisconsin over the past 15 years or so? Well, you're right to focus on it in that way because um, this court went the right in 2008 mm-hmm. uh, after a very racist campaign against the first black member of the court, uh, Justice Lewis Butler. He was narrowly defeated um, by a guy named Michael Gableman, who mm-hmm. went on to become Trump's uh, kind of mm-hmm. surrogate in the state during mm-hmm. you know some of these fights over efforts to overturn the election. Um, Gableman eventually got bumped off the court or you know, chose to not stay on the court. Um, but since 2008, that's 15, 16 years ago, um, we've really had a uh, a, a right-wing judicial activist court. When Scott Walker took charge, um, he just you know, supercharged that. And, you know, basically Walker and his allies used the court as a rubber stamp for their policies, even when those policies were passed in ways that were uh, troublesome, illegitimate, mm-hmm. at odds with the will of the people, um, often constitutionally dubious. The court just said yes, yes, yes to everything. And so now we have a, a huge number of issues that are uh, potentially going to be reopened. And, you know, one of them is separate from the recent pattern, and that is the state's 1849 abortion law. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin has a ban on abortion passed one year after Wisconsin became a state, decades before women could vote, um, you know, decades before, you know, a modern understanding of all sorts of health care issues. And, and so that law is still on the books. It's being challenged. It will almost certainly come to the court at some point. And up until yesterday, the court had a 4-3 anti-choice majority, uh, a militantly anti-choice majority. Mm-hmm. It now has a 4-3, or it will when Janet Protasiewicz is sworn in, have a 4-3 pro-choice majority. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a stark shift. It, it's highly significant mm-hmm. for reproductive rights in the state and, and, frankly, nationally because of the signal that gets sent. Mm-hmm. Clearly, this is a potent issue. But then there are a whole bunch of other issues, and and quickly to note, um, this court has dealt with a lot of uh, a lot of business cases, corporate cases, as all courts do, and um, many of them, you know, you have the potential to undo uh, the damage that was done 
during the very pro-corporate Walker area era. And in one of the key spots where that comes into play is on labor rights and labor laws. Mm-hmm. And the um, Walker passed some of the most anti-labor laws in American history, and uh, the court rubber-stamped how that was done. was very supportive. Some of that can be reopened. Uh, in fact, Janet Protosiewicz has said that, that the decisions, uh, the Walker's laws and Walker's anti-labor legislation was, quote-unquote, unconstitutional. So she's sending a clear signal mm-hmm. there. Um, and then finally, I would focus on the gerrymandering. Yep. Wisconsin is the most gerrymandered state in the country. Um, we have had repeated elections in which Democrats got the most votes statewide for legislative seats, and yet the legislature did not change at all. And in some cases, even became more Republican because the maps are so radically gerrymandered. Same true in our congressional district. We used to have a majority of Democratic Congress members. Now it's a 6-2 Republican advantage in con- congressional seats. Yeah. And so the gerrymandering is extreme. This court can revisit that, and uh, if it does, there are real possibilities that you could create far more competitive elections. Potentially, I always point out, you could easily come up with a situation where as many as two congressional seats from Wisconsin flip and fair maps from Republican to Democrat. If you look at how closely the U.S. House is divided, yep. those two seats could become incredibly significant. Indeed. And it just, you know, it's, it's maddening, uh, you know, seeing what Ari is talking about here, uh, statewide that, you know, candidates win, uh, Democratic candidates win 14 out of the last 17 elections. And yet there are super majorities now, it appears, in both of the chambers in the state legislature. Uh, I want to there was a special election uh, on uh, for Wisconsin Senate on Tuesday night between Republican Dan Knodel, is that how you say his name? Yeah, you did it pretty good. All right. Dan Knodel, and uh, I'm not going to have much more luck with the Democrat, Jody, uh, Jody Habush Sinekin, uh, with the Republican apparently defeating her uh, by a very close margin, about two points if the numbers we have today hold up, with about a 1,300-vote margin for the Republican out of some 75,000 votes cast. Now, this race is also a very big deal because the state's House and Senate are so gerrymandered that Republicans have a supermajority already in the Assembly, and with a victory by Canodal, they will have a two-thirds majority in the Senate as well. That's enough to impeach Protosewitz, as uh, Canodal has said that he would be willing to consider. Should we be concerned about that, John Nichols? Mm, look, Wisconsin Republicans have gone off the deep end so many times mm-hmm. that I would never counsel being unconcerned okay. about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's the, the crazy factor can get pretty high. However, um, today the, uh, the majority leader of the state Senate, who is a conservative Republican but a reasonably sensible one, basically said, we're not getting in the impeachment business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that's probably legit. I... I would not rule out if there was some, uh, you know, credible or even, you know, vaguely credible argument for uh, trying to impeach some official that, that it could happen. This is a much more extreme uh, legislature than we've had in the past. But there is no history of this in the past. It, it would be literally opening up a new territory. And I think, here's what I would suggest to you, mm-hmm. I think the Republicans um, know that it would blow up on them very badly. Mm. Um, if Protestant had only narrowly won, maybe they could make, you know, they could 
mm. fantasize in some beaver swamp dream mm-hmm. that, that people would like impeaching a Supreme Court justice. But when you win overwhelmingly in a clearly defined race, uh, I think an effort to impeach her would, would blow up. And I also, you know, I know the state Senate pretty well. There are two or three Republicans, including one or two, who might be retiring soon, who I just don't think would go along with it. So, uh, you know, always be on the alert, always yeah. be aware. But I don't see this as a major, as a major threat. And uh, the at other this point at this point, the other the other point, though, worth noting that uh, at least gave me some comfort when I uh, came to understand this. Uh, and you can confirm if this is correct. If in fact they were to do this, if in fact they were to be successful to impeach her, to somehow remove her, well, that leaves a vacancy that the Democratic governor Tony Evers fills. With his choice of whoever he likes, and then and it, it could be her. And it, oh, really? And it could be her. And yeah. then, uh, and then there's another election in two years in 2024. So uh, for folks who are panicking and and freaked out about this, uh, it's Wisconsin. So there's always a good reason to be, uh, as as John says, on your guard. But it looks like. Uh, it, it would be a long road and a very bad idea. John, I've got just a, a few more minutes. Uh, that one of the um, big concerns that people have pointed to with having a uh, progressive-leaning Supreme Court in Wisconsin is that in 2024, there's going to be a lot of questions about uh, voting restrictions. And uh, the Republicans, you know, tried to use the state Supreme Court in 2020 to overturn that election uh, that Joe Biden legitimately won. Far right MAGA activist Ali Alexander tweeted uh, on Tuesday night what some described as him saying the quiet part out loud. He said, quote, we just lost Wisconsin Supreme Court. I do not see a path to 270 in 2024. Can you unpack that remark for us very quickly, John? It doesn't sound good, does it? It sounds like you, somebody who might, and I'm certainly not going to try and get into uh, this individual's mind, uh-huh. but it sounds like there might have been folks uh, who were looking at a, a legal-slash-judicial strategy for winning an election that they couldn't win with the popular vote or the electoral vote. Uh-huh. Um and that is exactly what you saw in 2020, right? Now, the interesting thing is, this is relevant, uh, this discussion, mm-hmm. because in 2020, to a greater extent than any Supreme Court in the country, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, with its 4-3 conservative majority, entertained the efforts of uh, Donald Trump and his allies to try and come up with a way to upend mm-hmm. the, and overturn the election results in Wisconsin. Yep. They didn't ultimately do it, they split, um, you know, by one vote. It, mm-hmm. it failed because one of the conservatives decided not to side with uh, the Trump folks. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we came close. And uh, the important thing to understand is that Dan Kelly, this conservative candidate running for the court this year who got beat, um, mm-hmm. he wasn't on the court in the fall of 2020. He was working at that time as a lawyer for the state Republican Party and for national Republican groups, and was actually meeting with them and talking to them about the fake elector schemes, yep. literally schemes to overturn the election. Yeah. So were there Trump folks who I think were very excited at the idea of trying to get um, Dan Kelly elected to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. 
but it didn't go so well for them. <laughs> no, uh, apparently it didn't. And, uh, and and Dan Kelly is not very happy about that today, even, it seems. <laughs> uh, John, uh, very quickly, because I, I, I would put nothing by re- Republicans in Wisconsin at this point, if, if you know, the impeachment gambit does not work out, uh, is, is there anything else they can do to undermine this, what will be a new reality for them? Can they change the powers of the state Supreme Court somehow, for instance, and and by the way, when is the next Supreme Court election? Well, when Republicans might have a chance to flip the script back to the GOP. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of years, so um, that and it's actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think I'm right. The next Supreme Court election involves a very popular liberal justice, Ann Walsh Bradley. So ah, um, uh, their their prospects don't look all that great. Good um, on the in, on the electoral side, but I would you know look. This is still Wisconsin, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a deeply divided state. Tony Evers is a liberal governor, but he has a very conservative, very partisan Republican legislature. And and I think it's important to understand that because of that, um, Evers can't really govern effectively because everything he does is undermined by the legislature. Mm-hmm. And while the, their ability to rewrite the, the structures or rules as regards the court is limited because that's embedded in the state constitution, you'd have to overturn that. Um, I, I, do, I do still think that, you know, it's going to be, they're going to be ongoing battles in the legislature, and they're going to thwart Evers at a, at a number of, of spots. And, and one thing that, that I expect the Republicans might try to do is some constitutional amendments. Uh, constitutional amendments take time. You've got to pass it twice through the legislature. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to go to the ballot with something to, you know, Again, mangle or meddle with election law um, is is something they've they've been focused on for a long time. So I guess the bottom line is this: don't take your eyes away from Wisconsin, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. we've been talking. You and I've been talking about it for more than a decade. Yeah, and it's just it it is a battleground state. This is the state of Robert M. Lafollette, the greatest progressive ever to serve in the Senate, and of Joe McCarthy, the most <laughs> reactionary, I would yeah. argue, person ever to serve in the U.S. Senate, and those realities still exist, you know, those streams still exist, and this Supreme Court race um, is a very encouraging result as part of a very encouraging pattern in Wisconsin, but when you take your eyes off the prize, when you aren't paying attention, uh, patterns can shift back, so... Uh, that would be my counsel. Yeah, very good counsel. Uh, keep your eyes on the prize in Wisconsin. John, we will keep you on our speed dial. Uh, <laughs> Lord knows what will happen next there. Good news, at least for today, in the great state of Wisconsin. Journalist John Nichols is National Cor- uh, national Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, Associate Editor of the Wisconsin Capital Times in Madison, and the co-author with some guy named Bernie Sanders of a brand new book named It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. One of these days we'll actually get to talk about that book. Thanks, John. Great speaking with you today for, uh, for change. Happy news to discuss. Thanks for joining us, my friend. It's an honor to be with you, Brad. Thanks so much. You bet. Okay, so there's a lot of good news yeah, for you. Yeah, very nice. Uh, that said, since we don't have a Green News report today, Desi Doyen, yes. uh, we'll take a quick break, and I will come back and bunk everyone's high <laughs> with a few other stories that are uh, not quite so happy. We will see. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. During our uh, special coverage of Tuesday's arrest and arraignment of Donald Trump in New York on 34 felony charges related to his hush money payments to help him win the 2016 election and uh, the cover-up payments that he made thereafter while serving in the Oval Office for the next year, uh, during that uh, coverage and our conversation, we were talking about the long overdue importance of accountability for Republican presidents after so many years of seeming immunity from our laws and the compounding effect that that has had on a Republican Party, which is now so far off the rails, they don't even seem to know what is criminal or not anymore, or they just don't care. Here's a, a part of that conversation with uh, remarks from our guests on Tuesday, Heather Digby, Parton of Salon and Driftglass of Pro Left Podcast. There is huge temptation in in you know politics for people to be corrupt and to be to do criminal acts. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any accountability, the whole system becomes just a you know a, a, a you know a pigsty. <laughs> Of, it, it, becomes know, it, it, becomes it becomes what we have. It becomes what this and, and, what has and getting worse. Yes. Yeah. And getting worse. It's been getting worse and worse and worse, particularly since Nixon. And you know, we've seen one scandal after another about mm -hmm. you know real serious corruption on the part of these Republican leaders. And and it, it, if they don't do it now, I just fear that if they if we're not able to get some accountability, some way for the system to right itself. I really worry that, you know, we're definitely goners. This is way, way, way too important. It's not just Stormy Daniels. It's this whole idea that this guy feels that he is unaccountable to the law. And that is what it is. I don't care if it's Stormy Daniels, the election, the insurrection, whatever, the documents. Uh, and, and honestly, it's, it's not just... It's not just that he feels entitled. It's that Republican voters believe he's entitled to get away. Yeah, from mm. yeah. yeah. And that's, good point. that's the scary part, that there's 70-plus million Americans out there who think, yeah, he's corrupt and he's a criminal, he's done terrible things, and he, and he should get away with it because we're Republicans, and that's our natural right. So I, I think uh, Digby and Driftglass were right on the money there, Yeah, they nailed that one. Uh, regarding the party, who, which used to pretend that they were the party of law and order. Remember that? How quaint. Anyway, uh, just to underscore all of this, Fox News host Howard Kurtz, he's supposed to be a media crit critic or something uh, over on Fox. Uh, Kurtz and his panel of guests seem to underscore this point that uh, Digby and Driftglass were making during a discussion about the death threats that have been made against Stormy Daniels recently. And they seem to be justifying these death threats because she, you know, she dared to speak out about her alleged sexual tryst with former President Donald Trump. During this uh, panel discussion, Kurtz noted that Daniels had faced threats of, quote, murder 
after the news had broke that Trump would be indicted over his hush money payments to her. Let me play a uh, soundbite from a woman who's, whose name is uh, tossed around a lot, Stormy Daniels, talking to the Times of London. The first time it was like, gold digger, slut, whore, you know, liar, whatever. And this time it's like, I'm going to murder you. Are you frightened? For the first time ever, yeah. Claire got about half a minute. Um, the press has kind of treated her as a footnote, but it sounds like she's worried because she's gotten a lot of death threats. Yeah, look, she got $130,000 and never had to open her mouth uh, about this story at all and violated the NDA. So, and I has mean, made a lot know, of money off this since then. Through. Yeah, she's made a lot of money off this. She's put herself into the central part of this story. I think it's awful anytime there's client claims of violence or threats, but I don't think you can be surprised that given the temperature in the country right now and given this particular situation that things like this would arise. You agree with that? Yeah, I mean, if, if you don't want to take the ride, yeah. don't take the ride. Right. That's, that's the reality. Take, take the money and keep your mouth shut. All right. Jesus. Keep your mouth shut. Take the money and keep your mouth shut. That's Howard Kurtz, and that other guy was uh, some guy named Clay Travis. I don't know who he is. I'm not sure who that woman is. But uh, that's, that's, that's where the Republican Party is right now. That's where Republicans are at this point. And sadly, while they continue to fail at the national level, at the ballot box on the national level, that sort of fascistic support for violence and law-breaking, well, you know, harder for them to get away with at the national level is sort of creeping into the gerrymandered state houses now, the govern and the governments around the country. Just a few stories highlighting this from just the past few days around the nation. Just because you know we don't want you to get too giddy about all of the good news we've <laughs> had of late. And believe me, there are more, uh, but I'm short on time. Tennessee House Speaker Cameron Sexton is threatening to expel three elected Democratic members of the Tennessee State House after they acknowledged and supported a peaceful public protest over lax gun laws and the deadly school shooting at the Covenant School, the elementary school in Nashville, which killed three nine-year-olds and three adults just over one week ago. The protests at the state capitol included no injuries, no property damage, no arrests. But when protesters entered the House gallery, three Democratic House members had the temerity to stand up and cheer with them, chant with the demonstrators. Now, during the protest, the speaker, Sexton, warned the three lawmakers not to acknowledge the protesters because, you know, so much for free speech in the Tennessee state legislature. Two of the three have now been stripped of their committee assignments. And Sexton is justifying all of this by comparing the protests over this uh, this mass murder uh, protests against that he's comparing to the January 6, 2021 insurrection on Capitol Hill, which, in case you forgot, had sought to unconstitutionally overturn the results of a presidential election, resulted in five deaths, extensive property damage and more than a thousand arrests and prosecutions. On Monday, as Tennessee House Republicans were pushing forward to schedule a vote on the, these expulsions, protesters again showed up in the, in the gallery and started chanting fascists. Well, one of the uh, three lawmakers who was threatened with expulsion, he was videotaping this scene on his phone as Sexton ordered the gallery cleared of both the public and 
the media when a Republican House rep then pushed Rep. Justin Jones, is his name, pushed him and grabbed the phone out of his hands. Well, yeah, fascist indeed. In Texas, Republican members of the state legislature there introduced a slate of bills last week, quietly, designed to subvert election processes and curb voting rights in the state. One of the laws would even allow the Texas Secretary of State to overturn election results in the state's most populist and largest Democratic-leaning county. That's Harris County, home to Houston, with little or no rationale needed for doing so. The bill was introduced alongside over a dozen other bills seeking to restrict voter access and overhaul the state's already wildly restrictive elections process, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why Texas has the lowest voter turnout in the nation, and yet they want to make it more restrictive. State Republicans quietly introduced these bills last week without giving the mandatory 48-hour public notice because, you know... Rules are for dummies, apparently. There you go. According to Katya Erisman of Common Cause Texas, quote, every part of what the Republicans are doing highlights the subversive attacks on elections in Texas. State Democrats argue the introduction of a flood of anti-voting legislation targeting Harris County has all been a retaliation against the county turning blue back in 2018. Well, how dare them? This will teach him. And finally, in Florida, amid Governor DeSantis's attacks on the Walt Disney Company for daring to disagree with his and the state legislature's don't say gay policy, allowing for the banning of uh, sexuality and gender identity discussion in all classes and all grades in public schools, DeSantis is now weaponizing the state government by ordering an investigation into Disney's efforts to sidestep, to uh, outfox the attempted but failed government takeover of local oversight of the company's theme parks. That after DeSantis and the Florida State Legislature restricted Disney's autonomy back in February by appointing a hand-picked oversight board for a special tax district, that was enacted originally in 1967 that had effectively allowed the company to self-govern the district which is home to Disney World. Previously, Disney selected the local district board members, but the new state appointees to that board and uh, apparently the governor realized just last week that the Disney-controlled board, as one of their last actions before being replaced and pushed out, they had struck a development agreement with Disney that would limit the new board's power for decades to come. And so now DeSantis, after getting out foxed, is sicking the state's chief inspector general on Disney, demanding, quote, a thorough review and investigation into the company's successful efforts to circumvent what he believes is his big government authority over them, apparently. Republicans, big government, weaponizing government against anybody who disagrees with them. I'm, you know, looking at this and I'm, I'm thinking uh, the creeping autocracy or just plain full all out autocracy at this point in some of these states. And again, all of that's just a sample 
of what is now going on at the state level as Republicans are losing control nationally because, frankly, their policies are just wildly unpopular among the American people. And yet, because so many of these states are so gerrymandered for GOP control, almost no matter how their residents vote, you know, instead of reconsidering their policies, they're just doubling down and cracking down on dissent through these fascistic, autocratic, extrajudicial, extra-constitutional methods to game elections and to hang on to power in any way that they think they can get away with. So, yes, it is dangerous, as uh, Digby had noted. And yes, it is only going to get worse until these people finally face some accountability for their actions, either at the ballot box, which is next to impossible in many cases, thanks to the gerrymandering or by the enforcement of laws that for far too long at the federal level have just not seemed to apply to powerful public officials, especially presidents of the United States. And that sends uh, the signal to everyone else, oh, I can break the law, I can undermine elections, and so can you. That needs to end. And frankly, if holding Donald Trump accountable, finally, for all of his many crimes, if that's a beginning to all of this, a beginning to accountability, well, I am all for it. We got to start somewhere. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our guest today, John Nichols of The Nation, to our producer, as always, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our work. It is greatly appreciated. It is much needed by clicking one of those donate buttons at bradblog.com or going straight to bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at the Bradblog. And we will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.